So meditation then is divided into two sections, really. There's the meditation without a life preserver and a meditation with a life preserver. And granted, it's better for people usually to meditate with life preservers than without life preservers at the beginning until they get used to the fact that they're a turtle or a dolphin and not a landlubber. And uh, once they get used to that, then both meditations are useful. So the meditations that include life preservers are called in the East, they're called Samatha meditations, and they're divided into six categories of which every meditation you meet in any religion, in any tradition, anywhere, is going to fall into one of these six categories. And I'll just share them with you so that you have a frame of reference for whatever you might do in the future. Well, the first one, of course, is meditation on visualization, kind of a visualization meditation. So it could be anything from imagining a flower, meditating on a statue, meditating on a candle, uh, meditating on a sunset, meditating on your lover's naked body. Why not? Meditation on the dishes. I like. I personally like dishes meditation. It's so amazingly wonderful to watch this dirty plate go from dirty to clean. It's like it gives me great joy to just, you know, now if I had to work in a restaurant washing dishes every day, would it be so? You know, it's only work if you'd rather be doing something else, right? So, um, visualization meditations. And then you have mantra meditations. And mantra, of course, is sounding. Some chanting, mantras, yantras, and so on. So we have visualization, we have mantras, then we have uh, what is called mudra meditation. And mudra meditation is movement. So that would include everything like yoga, tai chi, qigong, but it could include golf and basketball. Anything that involves in movement, that's three. Then we have devotional meditations. So now you think of devotional meditation, you tend to think of shrines, right? Or devotion to an organization or devotion to a particular person and so on and so on. But where is your devotional meditation done? Hmm? TV. TV is the number one devotional meditation of most people in the modern world. Three to four hours a day per person. It's almost more energy than you spend at work. You're devoted to that box. Food. Food. Your children. Your children. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, it's a very good one. There's another one, though, that, that I'm kind of thinking of at the moment, which is the mirror. <laughs> the mirror. Devotional meditations aren't very popular these days because we've kind of associated devotion with calm. If you're devoted to something, you're being conned by something. You've been conned by your government, you've been conned by your business, you've been conned by uh, thalidomide, or you were conned by the, you know, the food industry. I mean, we've been conned by so many things so much so thoroughly that I'm not going to trust or believe or put my belief in anything. And so devotional meditations aren't so popular these days. But um, devotion to the idea of awakening might not be a bad one, huh? So there's that. There's breathing meditation, which is usually the sixth one. So just put it as number six, and we'll come back to it. And the fifth one is energy meditation. Uh, meditation is on the movement of energies. This is a little bit more introverted in terms of a meditation. And you see it really comes up in things like uh, shiatsu or, 
or uh, inner inner body meditations like with energy channels, the Kundalini, stuff like that. So is that six? Mm -hmm. All right. Now the thing about breathing meditation is it has the ability to go two directions. Breathing meditation can take you into the results of samatha meditation, or it can take you into the the seventh category of meditation, which is insight meditation. Remember I said at the beginning there's two kinds of meditation, samatha. So samatha is the first six, and vipassana, or insight meditation, is the other one, or the seventh, depending on your account. Meditation without a life preserver, using the metaphor earlier, is vipassana. Meditation with a life preserver are the first six. Now breathing has the advantage of sitting on the cusp. It can go either into the life preserver side or it can go into the no life preserver side. And breathing meditation, of course, is one that anybody can practice. It's good for any kind of temperament, any kind of person. So breathing meditation is therefore the most common and probably the most well-known of meditations. But also breathing meditation can be very hard to do. Why is that? Because breathing meditation is a very subtle object and therefore it's very easy to lose track of where you are and what you're doing and wander off into stories. stories. Now the biggest hindrance to meditation is stories because stories is just internal TV and internal TV does not constitute meditation. Alright, now with Samatha practice, you know, the first six, the purpose of Samatha meditation is to develop concentration and calm. Deepen the calm, lengthen the concentration. So yoga is a mudra meditation. It deepens the calm and it lengthens the amount of time you can sit still doing not much. Of course, it came to the West and yoga got much busier. Uh, yoga became like a, kind of like a power uh, yoga, moving a lot, you know. They're very much more built for the Western mind and so on. But fundamentally, developed deeper concentration and and deeper calm. Now, if you can stay with that, the inevitable result of samatha meditations is bliss. There's nowhere else to go with that other than bliss. That's okay. Concentration, calm. Now, what happens usually is that your, your habitual mind is so busy and so active that your concentration or your calm gets interrupted easily, doesn't it? Somebody's got a cell phone on during the yoga class, or you know your cell phone goes, or you remember that after yoga you got to get to the store to get you know, and so your concentration and calm get interrupted by your by your uh, habitual life, and so you tend not to as as often end up in bliss. But if you do hang in, you do find you end up in blissful states, do you not? Now, if you can maintain that state, then you maintain the bliss. And there is no reason why you couldn't dwell in bliss every moment of every second for the, every day for the rest of your life without interruption. Can you see that? All you have to do is not let your concentration be interrupted, nor your calm. Can you see that as a hypothetical? Yeah. Yes. But what comes along? And what is the nature of the interruption? Your life. <laughs> you think 
that interrupting the calm and concentration to get to the doctor's office, to get to the drugstore, to get to the grocery store, to get home, to cook the meals for the kids, is worth interrupting the bliss. Now that doesn't mean you have to sit in the yoga studio until 6 o'clock at night. You still get up, you still go to the grocery store, you still go to the doctor's, you still get the food, and you still put the food, uh, cook the meal for the kids, but you don't let any of that activity interrupt the concentration and the calm. So what you're learning on the yoga mat, or in the meditation hall, is you're learning how not to let normal activity interrupt the state of calm and concentration that you develop through the meditation practice. Fair enough? And as you do that, the bliss gets deeper, uh, and the bliss gets more concentrated and the bliss gets extended, and slowly then you can extend that bliss out into all aspects of your life. So that's all meditation with life preservers. Now, breathing meditation can also go the other way. It can go into insight, and the nature of insight is that, that it tends not to go towards bliss, it tends to go more towards inquiry, examination, so it goes more towards analysis. So the nature of insight meditation, the meditation without the life preserver, the nature of insight meditation is question. Now, if you're in a relationship and you're lovey, 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 dovey, dovey, lovey, dovey, and everything's just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> it's very good. I love it. This is so nice. Then everything's okay, right? But then what happens? You have a disagreement about something. And what do you immediately try to do? What are you trying to do? Why are you fighting in the first place? Hmm? Trying to stay in your bliss. You're trying to stay in your bliss, and they've interrupted you. Or they behaved in such a way that they've messed with your bliss. So what you're trying to do is somehow manage yourself back into your bliss while fighting with your boyfriend. So you try to get the bliss... But you're in a situation where the, the bliss isn't going to help. Because the, your fight is not about the bliss, is it? Your disagreement or your problem in life is not about, it's not about the bliss. Your, your, your fight is about lack of insight. So if you find your way to bliss, then you count on it and keep trying to laugh at it and use a bliss to find another way to lead you into addiction. Yeah, sure, but what a nice way to go. I mean, would you rather be addicted to, like, irritation with your mother or the, the, I mean yeah, yeah I'm being a little smart but but it's much better to be addicted to bliss than alcohol it's much better to be addicted to bliss than than shopping it's for one thing it doesn't cost anything <laughs> it's much better to be addicted to bliss than um, anger or ill will or jealousy or fear or negativity of any kind, is it not? I mean, you're already addicted to the normal life, we'll say, right? You're addicted to shopping or food or your relationship or your work or money, right? The fact that you have 10 addictions out there, none of which are sustainable, because they can always be interrupted, doesn't make it necessarily a better place to be than being just addicted to bliss and being in bliss all the time. And then you can still go shopping. <laughs> it's a win-win situation. You can be still, you can be a bliss, and still go shopping for that new dress. Whereas going to the new dress, going getting the new dress, it may not necessarily produce the bliss, because the uh, the refuge, if I can, the refuge is on that new dress. Now, if you put your refuge in the bliss, 
Is there something wrong with being addicted to that? Well, for one thing, you're going to have a problem. It's really, really, really hard to stay in the state of bliss un uninterruptedly without also developing the other meditation, the one without the life preserver, which is the insight practice. In other words, the question. So now you're in the state of bliss, and we're going to argue that you're not a uh, Mahasiddhi, a master of bliss, and that things in your life can come along and interrupt you, right? So now your practice is to learn how not to be interrupted from the bliss when things go wrong. We'll assume you want to do that. But in any case, you you need that other meditation now, which is that insight meditation. And the insight meditation is the opposite to the bliss meditation, which is why there's two of them. And the insight meditation is, how did I get into this position that I'm not in bliss? Oh, I thought if I bought the new dress, I'd be happy. And I was, for the first three or four hours, or three or four times I wear it. Now I got a little heavier, and now I can't get into it, and so on and so on. So with the insight meditation, the key to this meditation is question, which is like, what's happening here? What's going on here? What's going on in this being? What's going on in me? what's going on in my situation that I don't really want to know that's keeping my head in the sand and actually therefore interfering with my ability to be in bliss. Alright, so those those are the two kinds of meditation. The samatha or the insight and then the samatha breaks into six. Now, from the point of view of the awakened ones, the awakened ones are always in a state of bliss. Uninterrupted, 24-7, 365. But they're also, the, the best of them, are also always practicing insight meditation at the same time. So eventually you can hold the question, you can hold the analysis, you can hold the examination and the bliss simultaneously. Now most people err on one side or the other. You get the bliss bunnies who just want to be blissy, blissy, blissy all the time and then have a kind of irresponsibility, which you might have been your point about being in bliss all the time. A kind of irresponsibility to life in the world and the suffering of other people and things, right? This is the Indian sadhu method. I just shut it out, disappear, goodbye, so long, thanks for all the fish. And then you have the insight meditations, which is more like Zen in Japan or um, insight in Southeast Asia. And this is much more an examination of, well, what is it, what is it that gets me into trouble in relationship to my own consciousness and there's always going to be a view in there or an attitude or an idea about the way things are which is not in accord with reality. This is going to raise another question, isn't it? What is reality? What is reality? Well, <laughs> from the point of view of Buddhism, reality has some... Uh, they say reality can't be described, it can't be named, it can't be defined, it can't be... You can't talk about it, really. But having said that, <laughs> let's talk about it. Uh, they're going to say, well, for one thing, there is no object to be found in the universe anywhere. That all objects are made up of composite parts. There's no such thing called a car. A car is made up of rubber and tires and seats and radios and wiring. And so a car is just a label for a bunch of composite things. In the same way that we say a car is made up of composite parts, we're going to say a human being is made up of composite parts. The, uh, the composite parts turn out to be universal for a human being. 
there's body or form. That's one composite part. She has hair and eyebrows and teeth and you know pus and synovial fluid and fat and sinew and tissue and excrement urine and and phlegm and they 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 break it up into 32 parts muscle fat tissue skin so on and so on so that that's pretty universal right every human being has the same if not the same shape or size as a part everybody's got a kidney everybody's got a liver everybody's got a heart everybody's got lungs right? so so that's one composite part physical thing but even those are made up of parts so even the liver doesn't suffer, the cells of the liver suffer, but the cells of the liver are made up of parts. So now you're down to atoms and electrons suffering, right? And then you're down to like neutrino suffering, and then it turns out that the, that the atom, which is made up of electrons, protons, and neutrons, is 90% empty space, so empty space is suffering. <laughs> oh wow, what happened to your problem? Okay, so one composite factor is the body parts. The second composite factor is something called feelings. I have feelings. Third one is? Perception. Perceptions. So I perceive, I perceive the color blue, what we call the color blue. I perceive what we call the color green. I perceive sounds. I perceive smells. I perceive tastes. But these aren't mine. Doug doesn't have flowers in his head. The flowers don't somehow kind of get into my head. They go through little nerve endings and travel along little lines, which, you know, has bits of vibratory energy, and they get it up here and they're a flower. So, obviously, perceptions aren't me either. What's left? Well, there's a consciousness, isn't there? There's, there's something that's saying, oh, uh, I see that, or oh, I hear that, or oh, I feel that, or... So the consciousness registers experience. The fifth one is called factors of consciousness, and that's what actually appears in your mind, like, this guy's an idiot. right? Or, wow, this guy's really interesting. Or, like, what the frick is he talking? Which metaphor are we on now? I'm still in the ocean with the life preserver. And so all that, all that, um, all that data, I guess, for lack of a better word, so from the point of insight meditation, what you're doing is you're going form, feeling, perception, consciousness, factors of consciousness. Form, feeling, perception, consciousness, factors of consciousness. Form, feeling, perception, consciousness, factors of consciousness. But there is no key other than the current set of s composite parts. And uh, we're going to argue that no matter how hard you look for one, you won't find one. You go, well, how about my memories? But memories are just previous storage uh, cells for previous experiences of form, feeling, perception, consciousness, factors of consciousness. In fact, you didn't even know your name until you were two. You couldn't say the word I until you were two. It's impossible for a child pre-two to say me, Bill, or Mary, or Bob, because that database hasn't come together with enough information to push that referencing mind over the edge of where the experiencer of the objects now has a sense of continuity separate from the objects they're experiencing. It doesn't happen until two. And about two, the kid starts to go, oh, 
I'm hungry. I want cookie, but the idea that I am the one who's hungry doesn't happen until the book two. And then now that it happens at two, now you're stuck with it for the rest of the time. <laughs> and this is true for all children. So what happens in meditation is you just start to dissociate, I guess for lack of a better word, with all the things that you call I. From like a, this feeling, a, this perception, this consciousness, this factor of consciousness, this physical sensation. This is doesn't make an I. What it makes is a is a labeling program called an I. And so now as a meditator, you start to realize that your bliss and your concentration can be uninterrupted forever, regardless of what's going on out there. Even if you're in a plane flying into a tower in New York City, you go, oh wow, this formation is about to experience explosion. Doesn't have to interfere with the bliss at all. Because there never was a you there in the first place. And uh, from our point of view, we're even going to argue that perception, feelings, and conscious factors of consciousness is going to continue after you lose your body. At death, what dissolves is the body. The other four factors continue. But they can no longer hold together the idea of a me, right? Because that me was so identified with being with that body. So feeling continues, perception continues, consciousness continues, factors of consciousness continues. But the me is gone because the holding, the lens that holds it together, called the body, has dissolved. Which is why you're so uptight about your bodies. Because it's intimately identified with the me thought. So what happens in insight meditation is you start to say, you know, why am I getting into these states? Is because I'm making the mistake of associating this feeling, this sensation, and this da 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 with me. I. I'm being hurt. I'm being mistreated. I'm being misunderstood. Whatever. And it, from a human point of view, perfectly ordinary, rational, sane understanding. But from a point of view of transcendent experience, we've got to get to this word transcendence yet. From the point of view of transcendent experience, it's a limiting case. Yes, you've hurt me. Even Buddhists cry. For more information, please visit clearskycenter.org. That's C-L-E-A-R-S-K-Y-C-E-N-T-E-R dot org. Thank you.